You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow, also in New York City. This is Bloomberg Technology. Special day coming up. Apple racing to ready in-house chips by 2025. And it has big implications for its suppliers. Shares of Broadcom dropped on the Bloomberg scoop. We'll discuss in a moment. And a big tech rally loses steam as Fed officials signal interest rates going beyond 5%. And earnings come into focus as well as CPI just around the corner this Thursday. Semiconductors outperform. And Chinese stocks roar back after signs the government is winding down its tech crackdown on data protection, on online gaming and investments in foreign entities. We want to dig into that scoop because it did move markets. We're pleased to say to talk about the replacements of chips and go really for its homegrown components and the implications on its suppliers is one Mark Gurman. He was there with the story. It did move big time. Let's just talk about what's new here. Is it the pace at which they're doing it? So we've known for some time that Apple will be moving away uh, from Qualcomm for its cellular modems, right? Now, the cellular modem, the Qualcomm chip, is what allows the phone to connect to data networks. So you can make phone calls, connect to the internet, download apps, email, basically do whatever you need to do when you're away from Wi-Fi. So we've known that. We also now know, to your point, the timing of that. That's going to be end of 24, early 25. It's going to start in one iPhone model, take about three to four years for that transition to actually occur. Now, the main new piece of information is in addition to working on its own cellular modem, Apple's working for the first time on its own Wi-Fi chip. Mm. So that's the Broadcom component that allows the iPhone and its other devices to connect to Wi-Fi. And this is actually a combined chip, so it also lets the phone connect to Bluetooth as well. So it's the component not only for cellular from Qualcomm that they're working on, but the component that also allows you to connect to wireless and Bluetooth. So they really want to own the entire wireless stack inside of its products. Mark, how, therefore, is the relationship between the two companies? What are executives saying about bracing of a future relationship. Yeah, so the Apple-Qualcomm uh, relationship has been you know, dwindling down for some time. Qualcomm has publicly said the last few years that it expects for Apple to design them out of its products. Remember, there was this major lawsuit over patents mm. and royalties. Apple settled that because it really needed a 5G phone with the iPhone 12 in 2020, and there was no way to come to market with a 5G device unless they used Qualcomm. So they needed to come to, I believe it was a six-year uh, licensing agreement and a four- or five-year supply agreement at that time 
uh, for the Qualcomm modems inside of the iPhones. Now for Broadcom, Broadcom and Apple signed a $15 billion deal a couple of years ago that expires at the end of this year, right? And so that is also an indicator that there had been some trials and tribulations between the two companies. And now we know that it's pretty clear that Apple is also planning to design Broadcom out. But you look at any major supplier of components inside of Apple's devices, you can bet that Apple wants to work on its own in-house custom solution. Mark, Cara and I had to completely rip up the script for the show today because you have broken one story after another. Your other scoop this Monday was that Phil, Peter Stern, sorry, who was the services VP, is leaving the company, leaving Apple, according to sources. Why is that significant? This is hugely significant. So Peter Stern was a very quick riser at Apple. He's the brain, the driving force behind Apple's subscription business as part of its services business. He led the business side of Apple TV+. Plus. Apple Arcade, Apple News Plus, Apple Fitness Plus, as well as the marketing side of all of Apple services. He spearheaded uh, bundles, bundles for content within Apple TV Plus, the channels service in the TV app, but also the Apple One bundles. So he was really the brains behind this push in services that has made it one of the most important components of the company's overall business. Now he's leaving. What that's going to do is going to raise the profile of Oliver Schusser. He's the head of Apple Music. Now he's going to be taking on much of the responsibilities of Stern, and you can really probably shoe in Schuster at this point as the eventual successor to Eddie Q, who, as we know, is the person behind all of Apple services and has been uh, a top executive, a very senior lieutenant, a top three to five person at Apple under Steve Jobs and now under Tim Cook. Mark, uh, I've just got back from CES Las Vegas, and you and I have written about this together in the past. Apple is never there, not normally in, in recent years at least, but there was a big discussion around AR, VR, and I noticed your newsletter, Power On, over the weekend, looking at 2023. <coughs> this will be a big year for Apple in the realm of AR, VR, won't it? So Apple's next big thing is a mixed reality headset. It's gonna cost about $3,000. They've been working on this for about seven years. They're gonna introduce it sometime this spring, March or April timeframe, talk more about it at their developer conference in June, uh, and then release it to consumers in the fall. So this is a big year for Apple in terms of AR and VR. And I'm sure you had suppliers who are working with Apple on components for that product uh, discussing their plans at CES. The price point, I mean, where we expected, 3,000? It's an earth-shattering price point. It's going to be, uh, let me do the quick math here, it's going to be about eight to ten times more expensive than the competing product from Meta. But it's also probably going to be eight to ten times better than that competing product. Ooh, so fighting oh. it's really up to uh, what consumers want to do with that. All right, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman breaks stories every hour of the day, does the math live for us on the show. Thank you. I mean, you know, AR, VR has been top of mind for you and I for a few days now. I was at CES where, obviously, you know, the, the latest consumer gadget, that is the next generation that people are looking to. You've had your own bit of fun Ooh. during the day on Monday, haven't you, in the realm of AR, VR? I have, and I arrived on my city bike, so apologies for any lycra that you might be able to see in this current footage, because I did have it on in my cycling outfit. But I got to play with the Quest Pro, which okay. I'm not sure if you laid, you've laid hands on the Quest 2, Two. right from Yes. Now, I happen to have Quest 2 in my home, but I hadn't played with a pro. Check out my leggings, I'm sorry. But I was looking at all these latest. Tribe XR was my favorite. You just saw me standing up using that. Basically, I was a DJ this morning, Ed. 
Is this a game or, or what, what are you doing? Let me dance. It's all, it's, you're immersed within this idea of you're being taught how to DJ, how to like build up the sounds, how to move them. Then I was doing here as I sat down more of the focus on horizon workspace. So this is really where perhaps Meta wants to get you excited. How the future of workrooms, how the future of us interacting at work might differ. And I have to say, I was impressed. And I just think before anyone's critical of things like NFTs, things like Peloton, right. things like the metaverse and VR, you've got to play with these things before you can have any sort of viewpoint here. And I actually really like the fact that I could be sat with just a small computer and actually through the wonder of VR and AR, I could have like surround screens. I could be having this beautiful view while I worked. It's basically like if you're going to stay in an Airbnb and have a small office, you could go and do it to a really wonderful degree. I think for me, you know, the, when it comes down to the technology, it comes down to that pr price point, you know, $3,000 yeah. for the Apple first generation of AR, VR headset. And, and Mark mentioned it, that the Quest 2 at least is, is many factors cheaper than that. But as you said, I have experienced it, you know, down in, in East Palo Alto. And, did you feel and sick when you used it? I actually felt, I did feel a bit disoriented, but, but for me, what was amazing was the workout. Yes, you know, I'm, yes. you know, I'm a Peloton user, I'm a gym goer, but the, the lightsaber game, for want of a better expression, really interesting workout, sweating. We'll dig up that footage for another time. <laughs> uh, great, great stuff, Carol. I mean, we want to get out there. That's the whole point. So if yeah. you're watching this and you're working in the realms of AR, VR, give us a call. Yeah, let us know. We it. want to play with these things. Coming up, what to watch in tech this year. Of course, two Fed officials throwing some cold water on traders this Monday after signaling that interest rates could top 5%. We'll discuss all of that and more with Emily Bauer-Sockhill of Bauer-Sock Capital Partners next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE.
We started off this show by telling you pretty volatile day in trading overall, particularly when you're looking at actually tech stocks managing to weather this sell-off, weather some of the concerns about whether the Federal Reserve is still very intent on hiking rates above 5% and managed to be galvanized by the reopening story from China. But what about the rest of 2023? Let's dig into it with Emily Bowersock-Hill, CEO and founding partner of Bowersock Capital Partners, $850 million in assets under management. Emily, great to have some time with you. And let's go broad to start this whole conversation off. When you look at the day's trading and you try and perspective out to what 2023 is going to look like, are you, are you bullish? Are you, are you bearish? What do you get in terms of your sense? Well, I would classify myself as bearish, uh, but I, you know, I think that's the consensus out there right now. So I don't think there's anything terribly, uh, you know, revolutionary about saying that. I think particularly in the tech sector, you know, we are at the end of, you know, we've essentially had a bubble burst that had been building for two or three years. And I started in this business back in the early 2000s. And so I have a very vivid memory of, you know, what happened in those years after the you know the first tech bubble burst so i would be surprised you know i think there's some really good names in the tech sector but i would be very surprised to see you know a quick happy rebound mm. uh you've got to be very selective within the sector and emily everyone that you talk to sort of keeps referencing the interest rate environment that is why we saw the collapse in valuations 2022 but is that the story for you now do we think enough of the prices, the overall valuations have thinned out enough that it's less about that, it's more about individual stories and individual stocks, as you say? Yes, I think the interest rate increases for the most part have been priced in. Mm. I think the problem here is that you look at a company like Amazon or Facebook or Shopify or Salesforce, you know, they really, during the pandemic, they spent with abandon. And they 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 increased their workforce. They spent very heavily on technology, and now reality is hitting, and capital is much more expensive. And this is why we're seeing the layoffs and we're seeing the slowdown in spend. And so, I while I think the worst is behind us, and there's certainly large parts of the tech sector, Apple, for example, Microsoft, that are probably fairly valued. I don't think we're going to see the kind of growth rates that we saw over the last 10 years, over the next 10. So I think it's, you know, these are these are premium companies, right? I mean, I'm not suggesting that anyone goes sell their Apple or their Microsoft. And in fact, it's probably a good a good time to gradually accumulate it. But don't expect the next five years to be like the last five. Emily, Caroline and I would love to get in some of the single names and, and specific subsectors in a moment. But there's this idea that actually in the coming weeks when we get fourth quarter earnings, irrespective of the trajectory for rates or the terminal rate, we're kind of bracing for this earnings recession, right? I was looking on the Bloomberg terminal. I think that the, the consensus is for earnings on the Nasdaq 100 to drop 2% or 2.2% this year. Is an earnings recession, an earnings recession opposed to an economic recession, the biggest risk to tech right now? I am expecting an earnings recession. I think that interest rates have increased so quickly. You know, the Fed raised seven times in 2022, and it takes time for that to trickle through to earnings. And so I think we're going to have some earnings disappointments. And, you know, I think we're going we're gonna to see that certainly through this fourth quarter reporting season. 
So I, you know, I share the consensus view. The only thing that's alarming to me is typically when there is this much of a consensus, it's wrong. So it does <laughs> give me some pause. Right. Let's get to some of your top picks for 2023. I know that you yourself hold some of these stocks. Indeed, they're in your funds as well. But the names that jump out at me are not just the chip makers, but the chip equipment makers. We're showing on our screen, LAM Research, TSMC. Is there, is there a broad rule of thumb you're applying here to those names? Yes, I think actually LAM Research and Teradyne have very very similar competitive dynamics. Think of them as being, you know, the equipment services of tech, the way Schlumberger is, the oil services of the energy sector. And so they are going to be a little bit more resilient in this very cyclical business. They're a little bit less affected by decisions like the one that Apple just made. They're, uh, they've got very, they've got high barriers to entry because the amount of capital that has to go in built to building some of this equipment is very substantial. So I think, and they all, they're both very well-managed companies with strong cash flow, with strong balance sheets that are, that are very disciplined and they've had to be in an industry like this. Mm. So it's their, their companies to own collect a dividend and, you know, wait for some of this these semiconductor issues to work their way through. You know, it was a terrible year last year, down 33% overall for the sector. So yeah. there, there's definitely value there if you're selective. And a lot of geopolitical risk all wrapped up in that, whether it's China, US as well. Emily, we've talked sort of through, therefore, areas that you're kind of being cautious, but still holding on to the Microsofts, the Apples, then talking about the areas that you're looking to actually like buy into. But I mean, where should you just be getting out of avoiding at all costs? This is a little bit risky to say, but I think some of these IPOs, we call them broken IPOs. I'm sure there are many people who use that term. But there were a lot of technology companies that IPO'd in, you know, 2021, you know, 2020, 2021, 2022, that I think have a long road to recovery. It doesn't mean that they're not good companies. And I would put in there Palantir, Asana, Affirm. Big commerce, you know, some of these companies that now are going to be stretched by how expensive capital is. Mm. So I would probably avoid those companies now. I would wait. I think there's going to be a better entry point down the road. It's interesting. Emily Bowersock Hill, CEO and founding partner of Bowersock Capital Partners. Thank you. You know, I'm just looking at my Bloomberg, Caroline. Palantir, you know, not the best year in 2022. The EV makers that were the worst performers literally on the NASDAQ 100. She's saying still not the time. All right, time now for your top tech calls, starting with Jefferies, placing Uber at a buy as the firm sees some upside from improving sentiment on the ride-hailing company's profitability. Meanwhile, Jefferies dropped peers, DoorDash to an underperform rating, and Lyft at a hold. Next up, Oracle upgraded to overweight from neutral at Piper Sandler as its cloud transformation takes hold. Piper also notes that fiscal 24 might be a watershed year for the software company with growth in operating profits and earnings per share accelerating to more than 10%. 
10%. And finally, Tesla. Auto stock investors had a pretty rough year in 2022 as the industry suffered through supply chain disruptions and inventory imbalances. And Tesla not spared. Therefore, Bank of America cutting its price target for the EV maker from $275 to $135 and reiterating a neutral rating, Carol. Interesting, though Tesla managed to be rallying on the day. But we want to dig into Tesla price cuts and not just on its price target. Let's talk about the price cut ramification on the actual car, particularly in China, because we know that, of course, they have been cutting the prices over there. But showrooms, therefore, have been overwhelmed, not with potential buyers, Ed, but protesters, people going and saying, look, you've taken down the price. What about me? What about the amount that I've just paid for my recently purchased electric vehicle? And I think all of these cut prices, I mean, what was it, 14% right. they cut last week, the second time in four months? Not only are they way cheaper to go and buy over in China than they are in the US, but you would be pretty annoyed if you just purchase one at a higher price point. Yeah, second cut in China since third cut since October or second recently and you know I think the executives have taken to Twitter to say these are the lowest they've ever been mm. and what's fascinating is the discount to US sale prices is 30 to 40 percent so they're basically saying we missed the boat yeah we want in doesn't work like that. I mean, to, on a much smaller scale, I remember when I bought my full price Peloton. Right. Like many people were actually buying right. them like higher than full price. I mean, if we all went back to the depths of COVID and thought about the supply chain headaches, we were all spending above and beyond on many well, we didn't have crystal balls. Items. We didn't yeah. know that was going to happen. So. I mean, now look how much cheaper that they are, but I'm not running down to Peloton and saying I want all my money back. But I can understand the, uh, the frustration when these things seemingly happen overnight. Right. And now Peloton follows up with more incentives to kind of move that inventory of cheaper bikes mm. and also trying to sell the more expensive hard as well. I think on the EV side, what's interesting is there are many more players in China than there yeah. are here in the US. Yes. And there are other, well, there's just other names. BYD, for example, raised prices and had a record quarter of deliveries. So, well, I mean, but what's the price point differential for a BYD versus a Tesla? Are they much more a luxurious price point at Tesla? Not the, not the huge premium that a Mercedes, for example, might uh -huh. offer, but there's just more choice for the consumer. Right here in the US, the price range is much smaller. Well said. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York, alongside, Hello. in the flesh, Mr. Ed Ludlow. What a joy. Meanwhile, what we've got to do is talk global while we're both sat here in New York. We want to talk about the page potentially being turned in China for the tech stocks. Is it? Now, the Hang Seng Tech Index jumped after a top central bank official actually said that they clamped down on the internet sector. That's drawing to a close. Alibaba led the rally, which comes, of course, after a major squeeze on Chinese tech markets more broadly for the past two years, no less. And the drop seems to have stemmed from regulatory scrutiny on data production, on online gaming, and a government push to untangle investments in certain firms. But meanwhile, let's just think of the poster child of Chinese entrepreneurship, one billionaire Jack Ma. He's actually giving up a controlling rights of Ant Group. That's the fintech part of his empire, really. It's a sign that Ma is retreating yet further from his online empire following China's tech crackdowns. And he has mostly disappeared from public view since giving a speech that, of course, rather criticized Chinese regulators. Just think, 2020, that huge scuttling of the ant listing, still having repercussions, it still feels it like. It was such a catalyst for US listed tech shares this Monday. That and the fact that ant appointed individuals with their own voting rights, yeah. basically taking it out of Jack Ma's hands. Meanwhile, Beijing is spending big money as the US aggressively pushes for more semiconductor manufacturing market share. That includes the passage of the CHIPS Act, which brought more investment to US-made
US-made chips or future US-made chips, as well as this embargo on China chip exports from the US. Bloomberg's Ian King covers all things chip for us. Good mate of mine back in the San Francisco Bureau. Uh, we've talked a lot about US policy to restrict China's access to chip making equipment and, and, and the latest generation of chip technology. My question to you is what has China's response been? What has China's policy been to advance their own semiconductor industry? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. I mean, the way to think about this is to think about what South Korea did, think about what Taiwan did. And it took them basically 30 years to get to the position we're in, where Samsung is the world's largest chip maker, TSMC is arguably the world's most advanced chip maker. China has been following that path. Unfortunately, the US are not supporting China in the way that they supported Taiwan and, and, and South Korea. And therefore, China has got to this point where they've spent billions and really haven't got to the point where they can do things like withstand these restrictions that the Americans are putting upon them. And really, you know, they're at a point now where they're having to reevaluate how they're going to pursue this going forward and, and perhaps take an even longer approach to gain that independence that they so desperately crave. This is one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg terminal and Bloomberg.com. Aggressive US chip strategy forces China into a corner. You know, in that corner, they're not just throwing money at this, although they are to a, to a large extent, but I, I guess it's a policy action, right, where they're saying to China's state and private enterprises, you guys have to find us a technological solution here. What else are they doing? Yeah, I mean, it, it's been a, a vacillating policy that, you know, they've put billions to work and then they found that they didn't really get what they wanted and then they've gone after some of those people who've actually been in charge of it and they've said, look, we've wasted money, we've done this. So it's really not clear what they can do at this point because some of those key points, some of those key choke points are really in the hands of the Americans. Unless they can get the machinery and the technology from the Americans, they're going to struggle and it's going to be a really, really long road to domesticate that and take it away from the point where that, you know, they're subject to external factors. Ian, I feel like it was the beginning of last week where some US chip companies got a bit of a bid higher because there was suddenly talk of China sort of giving up, taking its foot off the accelerator when it comes to its own chip manufacturing. Are these rumors going to circulate in such a way? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we've, we've got all kinds of rumors, all kinds of speculation going on, including our own reporting, which says, well, what are the Europeans going to do? What are the Japanese going to do? Are they going to get in on board? Is this situation for China going to become even more extreme? Are we heading to more of a standoff? On the flip side of that, obviously, some of the US companies don't like the fact that they're being locked out of their largest market mm. uh, and, and are clearly lobbying against that. So you know, a lot of ebb and flow in terms of the conversations in places like Washington about how this is going to play out, whether we see easings or whether we see an increasing um, clamp down on China and, and the potential out, you know, consequences we'll see in the marketplace. Just get us up to speed a little bit with just China's focus more broadly in, in technology in, because we talk here of them clearly in defining wanting to double down and ensure that they can take on the US when it comes to chip manufacturing. But in the same breath, we were just talking about one Jack Ma, who basically has been in exile ever since he spoke out against the Chinese regulators. And many of these billionaires have been forced to sell down their overall ownership and certainly reduce their overall billions too. How do you think China sits with its technology right now? 
Again, I think that it's a fluid situation. I was speaking to a, a CEO who said he's concerned that, you know, the leadership in China is disillusioned with what electronics with semiconductors and the internet has done for their economy and hasn't helped them. And he's concerned that you know, there's going to be a turning away from this that, that they'll go back to heavy industry or, or something else to try and you know, carve out a, an economic niche for China. Um, the, the other side of it is that, well, perhaps China's learning its lesson that it needs to play better in the world economy and, and, and in order for these industries to flourish and we'll see a, a new era of cooperation. Hard to say which way it's going to go at the moment and certainly in you know, the decision makers that we're talking to seem to feel like we're going to be pursuing a harder line with China for the foreseeable future. Ian, like Caroline and I, I'm sure your head's spinning from all the headlines that hit the Bloomberg this Monday from one Mark Gurman and all his Apple reporting. I mean, the key headline that moved markets was that Apple is going to move to use in-house technology in place of Broadcom and also Qualcomm uh, chipsets and modems going forward. We got Mark's take on the Apple side of this story. What is the chip maker take on this side of the story? Yeah, I mean, the, the quick take for Qualcomm is they've been talking about this for a while. We've been reporting about this for a while, and they've acknowledged it and said, you know, it's kind of a matter of time. We'll enjoy this while it lasts. And guess what? It's actually lasted a bit longer than we thought. So on that side, not so much of a shock. On the Broadcom side, as recently as December, Hoktan, the CEO of Broadcom, was talking about how good their Wi-Fi chips were, their combo chips were, and how, you know, why would you go anywhere else? So this is clearly more of a shock for them, and this is something that I'm sure analysts and investors are going to focus on more heavily. Ian King, resident Brit and SF, mate of one Ed Ludlow and mine, and also giving Ed the odd fashion tip, it feels like, you guys, with the, <laughs> ni the nice see-through glasses, the no tie. It's a look. Ian King, thank you so much. Meanwhile, like, Eddie, while you're here, let's, let's talk about your favourite thing, our favourite thing, and of course, let's think about EVs a little bit more. But when it comes to China, what was so interesting is not just some of the price drops that Tesla's been doing, but also the talent yeah. moves, right? And this was a big story at the end of last year. Yes, yeah, so, so we're talking about Tom Ju, who was kind of the mastermind behind the construction and ramp up and performance of the Shanghai plant. And as we reported about a month ago, he's been in the United States, both in the Bay Area and Fremont and in Austin, basically installing his own people um, mm. and trying to make those factories better. Because honestly, Shanghai's 50% of Tesla's pro uh, production is kind of the standard that Tesla wants to hit. Sources tell me that this guy is serious. He works super hard. And, you know, we, we've done a profile of him on the Bloomberg terminal. The question the market has is, is this a future Elon successor? Because there has been a lot of talk, right? Not right. only about Elon Musk handing over the reins over at Twitter, but right. many wondering about key man risk and about ensuring that you have a deep bench for his role as CEO at Tesla as yeah, well? Yeah, the, the confusing thing is that Elon himself talks about wanting to be on the engineering side, less about the pencil-pushing side. Mm. Tom Jew is also very much on the engineering side. So where we net out, we don't know, but he's certainly a name to watch in the future. It's a great read-up. Go, go have a look on .com, on the terminal too. All right, coming up, the top IPOs to watch with Equity Zen's Are there going to be any? Well, he's got a list. <laughs> we'll see. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. 
Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Oh, we just teased ahead to it, the IPOs, initial public offerings for 2023. Will there be any? Yeah, <laughs> look, right now in focus, there's a few in Asia. It's been a bit busy at the start of the year there. But Ed, what can we expect in the US and abroad? Yeah, I mean, we're looking for a sense of direction and energy in the IPO market. So I thought, let's look at 2022 and some of what happened. $207 billion raised globally 2022. That's a pretty significant drop, around 70% from 2021. And that's where context is king, because what happened in 2021? Well, we had not yet embarked on that aggressive uh, rate policy, not just from the Fed, but central banks, banks around the globe, but also had the SPAC wave, right, where a number of special purpose acquisition companies also listed their sh shares in hopes of acquiring target companies. That sort of SPAC enthusiasm dropped off in 2022, a part of what's happening. There was energy in China and energy in Middle Eastern markets, but actually flip up the boards and let's talk about the US because... You can't quite see it, but on the far right-hand side, that is kind of listing volumes for 2022 in the U.S., around 24 billion, nothing compared to 2021. And again, higher rates having a real impact there, volatility in markets, also kind of this, the start of the conversation around recession globally clearly having an impact. The question, as you said, Asia or the U.S. in 2023, there are some green shoots, and we can ask our next guest about this, but block trades, bear with me, block trades trades are taking place to a certain extent. There's this idea that you see some secondary offerings as a precursor to some primary offerings down the road, IPOs down the road. IPOs take a really long time, but you can make a secondary transaction happen a lot more quickly. So we're looking for some optimism, but that's what happened over the last two years. And whether those trends continue, don't ask me, ask our next guest. Yeah, because there's a marketplace for these secondary sort of in transactions in the secondary market and well it's equity zen we're pleased to talk about all of it with phil hazlitt he's a co-founder and chief strategy officer of that platform pre-ipo investing at the moment 
any of those pre-IPOs looking to our natural exit route? Do you think many of them will in any way get to market this year? I think we're going to probably see some companies come to market in the second half of 2023. Yeah. We saw a pretty frozen IPO market, as you just previously alluded to, and that's starting to thaw out a little bit. But all it really takes is maybe just one or two of these bellwether pre-IPO tech companies to finally test the market. And if you've got one success, you probably open up the market for a bunch of others. I know you have some specific names you're watching for 2023. I kind of want to ask you the reverse question first, which is worst performers on the NASDAQ 100 in 2022 were Rivian, blockbuster IPO. I covered it deeply in 2021 right? Uh, sixth biggest IPO in US history. And then you have Lucid, second worst performer, or maybe the other way around on the NASDAQ 100. They raised a lot of money in the pipe from their trans, uh, SPAC transaction in 2021. Those were the two worst performers. What does that tell you about, you know, some hesitancy to go public in 2022? Maybe we looked at those two companies and said, we don't want that to happen. That's right. I think those two companies are a good example of what worked in 2021, 2022. Why don't I show you my revenue projections for 2026 and 2027 right. in a zero interest rate environment? And now when the rubber meets the road, you start to see companies that are operating in a 3 4 5% interest rate environment. You see risk come down and the risk appetite come down, which means that allocators into IPOs are now saying profits first, profit first, profit first. But you've built all of these companies with growth in mind, right? Mm -hmm. Venture capital investors were feeding money to these companies in 2020, 2021, 2022 at very high valuations. And the smart founders actually took that money perversely and are going to wait until they can come to market at a valuation that they think makes more sense. What's interesting that perhaps it's been forcibly ground to a halt because there's still a lot of tech companies who are listed with very deep pockets, but they can't do M&A at the moment because of regulation. Right. Now, one company like that was Arm Holdings, and you're saying, look, they might actually look to list. They still want to go public. That's right. That's right. I think that's a simpler avenue for Arm to go through than to try to test out any type of M&A activity in the current antitrust environment. Uh, Blizzard is probably another example of, you know, where it's been really hard to do large-scale M&A. And so you kind of think about what tools you had available as a private company about a year and a half ago. Everything was at your disposal. SPACs, large acquisitions, IPOs, and you've kind of got none of them, right? And so as a result, you see very little activity, except as you mentioned, we're starting to see some more activity on the secondary markets, which we typically see as a leading indicator for companies getting ready to go public. Vinfast is a name you've identified. I, I kind of, I didn't find it surprising because you know there's a large investor base that's still interested to find the next Tesla, frankly. But again, we went through that very long illustration of what happened to Lucid and Rivian. Do you not think that Vinfast is at risk of, of the same reception that those two names got? It's a great question. It has exposure to a slightly different uh, geography, which I think Correct. gives it an opportunity. Yeah. Um, but also, I think there's a lot of learnings from the, gosh, you know, 50 or 75 EV and LiDAR companies that have gone public um, on what you really have to show to investors, the reality of actual contracts, of actual deliverables, of actual supply chains up and running. Uh, and falling short of those, I think you're going to have a really tepid IPO response. And so I think there's a lot of learnings for companies that are coming out that basically said, thank goodness we didn't do this a year ago. I want to ask you about the burden of proof. You know, I continued covering Rivian, go on the Bloomberg, look at the quarterly earnings story, and, it, it, you know, I've been writing them. At the time they IPO'd, as you say, revenue was distant. Is the burden of proof now higher where pre-revenue companies in particular are kind of a no-go for investors, or, or is that still an opportunity? No, I think you're absolutely right. You've got to be a company doing hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue if you want to be one of these companies that goes public in 2023. Uh, the, the way I see it is that 
investors are not willing to pay for that risk of the unknown anymore. Um, you're kind of seeing it on why things are going completely quiet. The positive side, though, is that of those unicorn companies, of which there's a thousand plus, many of them are at the hundred or even billion dollar revenue level. And I think those are the companies you're going to see that are going to test the markets. And so really the kind of the watermark you would have seen for an IPO 15, 20 years ago, maybe 30 million in revenue, 40 million in revenue. Leading up to the dot-com bubble, it was eyeballs, right? And now we've kind of recalibrated and said, you have to show revenue growth and you have to show a path to profitability, not in 2027, but far earlier. And maybe a very loyal fan base like a Reddit, yeah. for example. But I'm interested, Phil, you said that in the secondary market, you have seen a little bit of pickup. Yeah. Who is buying, who is selling, who are the players that are at the moment? Yeah, it's a great question. The buyers we've seen are pretty, it's pretty interesting. A new phenomenon is that venture capital firms and growth equity firms, which typically invest just in primary capital raises, are finding that that market as well is completely shut. Mm-hmm. You know, Sequoia goes to a company and says, I saw you raised at 10 billion last year. Look at the market, how's five, five billion? And that founder tells them to kick rocks, right? Why would I do that? I already have a bunch of cash on hand. Uh, and so those venture capital firms are saying, well, if I want to invest these companies at market prices, I've got to look elsewhere. And a lot of times they find that there are eager sellers in the secondary market which, to answer your question, are employees, ex-employees, and maybe your early investor that had a lot of returns on paper and have some very angry limited partners saying, where's my cash, right? And if you can realize that now, that would be a good idea. Just totally fascinating. Yeah, I'm I'm not speechless, but what I would say is that, you know, there's a long list of names that we didn't even get to. And my final, very quickly, he's got about 10 seconds, but pent-up demand. Is there a bit of angst in investors that they want a big IPO? Yeah, I think investors want to see an IPO and they want to see success, right? Uh, If you didn't invest in lean hogs and crude oil in 2022, you didn't really make any money, right? And so I think people just want to be part of a winning strategy again. And so seeing some of these really healthy pre-IPO tech companies come to market, I think will really kind of open up the gates. Phil, we could talk to you for a very long time. Come back, Equity Zen co-founder Phil Hazlitt, where some activity apparently is going on. And I think that is an interesting one. I mean, at the moment, I like that Reddit, that Reddit was on the list. Yeah. Reddit's coming back to its own. Did you see, what was it, Bed Bath & Beyond? Right. Uh, again, the mean stock the mean lives, stock right. Credit. Yeah, there's still like douses of it. But, but it's there. fair, you know, Phil is one name. He did a very good job going through the list for us, but there is so much skepticism out there. Mm. You know, everyone agrees, first half of this year, in the technology sector at least, very unlikely to see a big IPO or even a little IPO. I'm sorry, Karen. Yeah, but there's going to be an awful lot of people, talent, who are wanting to buy a house, have children, make life steps, and they need to be able to have a liquidity event in some way, shape, or form. news in the world of soccer or look there's two brits here it's called football in in across the world it's going viral today because Qatar sports investment fund is looking at well the premier league no less for its next big investment manchester united liverpool fc tottenham hotspurs they're among the clubs being targeted by Qatar. no deal apparently is imminent but some clubs including liverpool and man u they are open to a sale meanwhile the premier league already has two clubs with middle eastern owners man city owned by abu dhabi based city football group and newcastle united recently acquired by the consortium for Saudi Arabia's Wealth Fund. Now remember, already going viral of late had been that Qatar was hosting the most expensive World Cup ever, more than 200 billion invested in infrastructure over the past decade. But what caught my eye on only on Twitter was these deals and potential investments. There was one man that's pretty close to your heart. 
What yeah. Gareth Bale? What was yeah. he? The third most Googled thing today? Yeah, on Google Trends, Gareth Bale retiring, age 33. I'm, I'm surprised, I'll be honest. You know, he had a disappointing World Cup by all accounts. He was the Wales, which is a nation of three million people, yes. by the way. Yeah, you context, know, and he's this context. global superstar from you know Tottenham through to Real Madrid and then went on to play for LAFC. And he hasn't really said while he's retiring, other than this is a transition and a change in, in his life. But I think a lot of people were like, Really? Yeah, so you couldn't even watch him on the West Coast. Oh, you know, Too living in San together. Francisco and watching football has been really hard. But I am surprised he's retiring, and he is a global superstar from Wales, joining the pantheon of legends like Tom Jones, Catherine Zeta-Jones, all the Joneses. But, um, you know, it's a real surprise. And look, taking to Instagram, taking to Twitter, yeah. not just people of Wales, but fans of football across the world, I think they're surprised that he's hanging up his boots. And it's, isn't it just notable the way in which these announcements are made? He did it with social a public statement, yeah. immediately onto Twitter, onto social media, directly to yeah. his fans. It's just a new way in which people sort of, well, suggest their, their life's curvature and whether or not you're putting your CV on LinkedIn or whether you're telling everyone about your next job move via the power of, of various social media. It's definitely the I'm, new way to I'm, do work. I'm sad, but thank you, Gareth Bale. That's thank all I'll say. Wow. That does it for this emotional edition of Bloomberg Technology. I'm so pleased you are here all week to I be am. emotional about Gareth Bell, but we're also going to be pretty excited about space, right? Yep, Dan Hart, Virgin Orbit CEO, and I think maybe someone else joining us tomorrow. Don't forget, <laughs> check out our podcast wherever you find your podcast: Terminal, Apple, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. This is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.